Let us hear God's word from Acts 19, beginning in verse 1. And it happened while Paulus was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. As we begin here today, uh, we often hear the need to be inclusive, to be accepting. And certainly there is some truth to that, and it can be about petty things. Maybe today, um, if you don't root for the Steelers, you're going to be excluded. Um, or if you're not wearing a mask out and about, then uh, you know there's something wrong with you, or you know whatever. So, if you are, you're going to be included. These everyday kind of things. We can talk about it though in ultimate things, of course, too. In regard to religion, uh, we hear repeatedly the survey of religion approach that all religions have truth to it. In fact, all roads lead to heaven, and we must be inclusive in this way. And if you say there's only one truth, you're being exclusive and bigoted and so on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> or just generally in our culture, we often hear about identity politics, and we must include everyone, though in the process we're dividing people. But anyway... Um, as we come to this passage, one of the key points I think that Luke is trying to communicate here for us is this idea of being inclusive, as I think we will see here by the end. So we have <clears throat> begun Paul's third missionary journey here in Acts. Last time in verse 23, uh, Luke ma- makes reference to that, and we see that he left Antioch headed northward, probably through Tarsus, and then through Derby and Lystra, stopping at Timothy's home, and then Iconium and Antioch and Pisidia. As on the second missionary journey here, Paul and Timothy encouraged the people along the way, strengthened the disciples in these churches. Now, either while Paul was doing this with Timothy, or even before he left, Apollos came to Ephesus. And he spoke quite effectively about Jesus, but as we saw last time, his knowledge was incomplete, especially in regard to Christian baptism. So Priscilla and Aquila instructed him more accurately on these things. Then after a time, Apollos left, and he went to Greece and ministered there. And we learned a few things. One of them is uh, God can use us even in our incompleteness. And that's a good thing because we're all incomplete in our knowledge and in our practice. Our lives are incomplete. Our understanding is incomplete. Nevertheless, we need to strive for a more accurate understanding and a more accurate practice of what we do understand. Now, as I was reflecting on this after last Sunday, I thought of another point that that is uh, helpful for us. Remember when we were talking about Paul in Athens, and he was speaking to these educated people. Um, 
Isn't it interesting that in God's providence, now God raised up Apollos to go there? This highly educated man, top of his class at the University of Alexandria. And yet, and God placed him, a good fit, you might say, for Apollos to go to Greece and to Corinth. Um, so anyway, we return now to Paul and his missionary journey. Um, but Luke again addresses this issue of incomplete understanding in one way or another. So, we look then at verse 1. And it happened while Paulus was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, we'll pause there. First we see Luke telling us that Apollos uh, left um, uh, Ephesus and came to Greece and in particular came to Corinth. Now he probably went to Athens, maybe Delphi or other places like that, but certainly he came to Corinth. And after that happened then, Paul came to Ephesus. Now here's where uh, looking at your maps may be helpful. You see the uh, the arrow and the line and such there as uh, Paul headed through these cities. You see Antioch and then Phrygia, uh, the reference there. And then if you go more or less straight west, you come to Ephesus. You see the line pointing down to the dot there along the coast. Well, Luke tells us here that uh, Paul passed through the upper regions. Now, what this references is that there were mountains there. And there was a road that went south of the mountains and a road that went north of the mountains. Simply, Paul went along the road north of the mountains. So on this map, the line goes more or less straight west, but maybe it would better be written to go up uh, north and west somewhat into the word Phrygia and then west toward the word Ephesus and then down from the northeast into Ephesus. Something like that is probably a little more accurate as to his direction. As I suggested last week, this probably took three to four months for him to leave Antioch and Syria and come eventually to Ephesus, spending a few days, maybe a week or something in each of these places along the way. Now, if he happened to winter somewhere along the way, then certainly it took longer than that. But something like that is what we're talking about. Now, when he came to Ephesus then, Luke tells us he found some disciples. Well... Whose disciples are they? Well, let's pick up now verse 2. Paul says to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but those just seem like the wrong questions. (laughs) Why did you ask this question, Paul? Why don't you ask, Are you a disciple of Christ? Hey, are you a disciple of someone else? But he says, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Why does he ask this? And then you have this rather bizarre answer. They hadn't even heard of the Spirit. Well, um, let's try to unpack this. This raises all kinds of questions, and I'm not sure we can fully answer all of them. But I think we can say that their response does not mean they had never heard of the Holy Spirit at all. Genesis 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. Psalm 139, verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Psalm 51, verse 11, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Joel chapter 2, in the day of the Lord, the Spirit will come and men and women will prophesy. To say they hadn't heard of the Spirit at all, period, I, I don't think is the point. 
Most likely, what this means is they had not heard of the Spirit's coming at Pentecost. And as we talked about at Pentecost, it's not like the Spirit never worked before that. Spirit works all the time since creation. But he came in a special way at Pentecost. And that is likely what is referenced here, that they had not yet heard of that. So, verse 3 then, Paul responds, he says to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Okay, again, maybe not the initial question we might think of, but this is his follow-up question. Which baptism did you receive? And so they say John's baptism. Now, I want us to look at uh, the gospel accounts of John here, and let's start by looking at Luke chapter 3. And obviously we could look at many things here, but um, in Luke 3, his account, as typical Luke, he gives us all kinds of uh, time references and who's ruling and so on and so forth at the beginning of the chapter. And then in verse 3, he says about John preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And then the fulfillment of Isaiah. And then he talks about people coming out, verses 7 and following, and John saying, you know, who told you to come out? You need to be genuine, basically. And so then in verse 15, right, they're starting to say, are, are you the Messiah? And he responds, verse 16, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I am is coming whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So it is likely then that these disciples had heard these words from John. They they knew about John's baptism, obviously. They were baptized by John. They say that. And they likely had heard some of the teaching of John, that John was telling everyone to be prepared for the coming Messiah. And then the coming spirit that the Messiah would bring. So, again, for them to not know the spirit at all, I think is a bit of a stretch, but had not yet seen its fulfillment. Well, at this point, our question of whose disciples are these uh, remains unanswered. And there are two key options. And so if you read one commentary, they're going to say it's one. If you read another, they're going to say it's the other option. And you really have two choices here, uh, though you may have some variation on those themes. So either these disciples were Christians, right, verse 2. It it says, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Um, And if that's true, then like Apollos, their understanding was incomplete. I don't think there's any reason to believe that Apollos was not a Christian. He just didn't fully understand Christian baptism yet. And so, if these men were Christians, then basically they're in the same boat, but they also don't understand about the coming of the Spirit. Note that additional point given to us here. And so, if this is true, then you can say Apollos had some holes in his thinking, but now these men had more. Priscilla and Aquila guided Apollos into fuller understanding, and here now Paul guides these men into a fuller understanding. Now, something I didn't mention last week, because I was basically waiting for today, it is likely that Priscilla and Aquila baptized Apollos with Christian baptism. Obviously, Paul baptizes these men with Christian baptism. 
Now let me refer to something I mentioned last week. You recall that I indicated that by this time, by 53 A.D., there were probably at most four books of the New Testament that were written. So most of the New Testament was not written yet. And so their knowledge and understanding was given through uh, oral transmission and the apostles and prophets. And, most notably, none of the Gospels were written yet, and Acts wasn't written yet. So, holes in people's understanding is much more understandable when we remember this point. And we say, who hadn't heard of Pentecost? And say, well, we've got the book of Acts. They didn't have that yet. And so, I think that accounts for it, at least to some degree. So, this is our first option. The other option that people lay forth is that these disciples were not Christians. They believed, but they believed in what John was saying, that the Messiah is going to come here any time, not hundreds of years later, but basically this is the generation the Messiah is coming. They believed that, and so they were waiting. So they were like Old Testament saints, but who would believe in the Messiah who was coming, but they uh, were in that generation. Now, it is kind of hard to imagine that after 20 to 25 years, these disciples of John had not yet heard about Jesus or Pentecost. But maybe that's what's being said. Or maybe we can say it this way. These people had heard about Jesus, but they got the fake news version of it. And now here Paul is going to correct what actually happened. (laughs) Um, So it's not as uh, much of a stretch to think they hadn't heard of the true Jesus at this point. So some will argue this way. And, uh, you know, there are strong arguments and opinions on both sides of this. And um, and, and I don't think it's as cut and dry as some may want to make it. Um, But if these men were disciples of John, then they believe, they come to faith in Jesus, and then they receive the Christian baptism. Well, let's look now, verses 4 and 5, and maybe this will help answer these questions a bit. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, clearly, John's message, as we just referenced in Luke 3, is saying, believe on the one after me. Believe on Jesus, on the Lamb of God. And Paul says that, and now these people receive baptism. So for those who say they were already Christians, then they point out that they didn't believe for the first time, but they now receive Christian baptism. That was what was incomplete. For those who say they were not Christians, they especially point to these two verses in their argument. And they say, well, why would Paul say it this way if they were already Christians? That's, in essence, their argument. They would also add this point. Why would Luke say the same thing twice, back to back? In other words, if Apollos is already a Christian, and then Priscilla and Aquila help him understand Christian baptism, why would Luke then give us another story saying the exact same thing in this section? And so the argument is, well, these people weren't actually Christians yet. So that's just, again, some of the arguments that go into this. 
All right. Well, what is clear from this passage and even in other things, um, people still were following John, even this many years after um, the uh, death and resurrection of Christ. And you know, John, of course, was very significant. Dale made reference to this in Sunday school here just a little bit ago. Uh, John was the last of the Old Testament prophets and was thus the greatest of them because he ministered when the Messiah did come. Uh, He is the first prophet since Malachi, about 400 years in between. He is the forerunner of the Messiah. He is the Elijah who would come. And so uh, it makes sense that people would be following John. And so Apollos and these men likely received John's baptism from John himself, followed John, and at least with Apollos, then believed on Jesus, and maybe these men too, but there again was still this incompleteness about Christian baptism and then the coming of the the, uh, Holy Spirit. So let me start to um, talk here a little bit about baptism and, and fit it into here. John's baptism, according to Paul here in verse 4, is different from Christian baptism. There are similarities, but it is different. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance to prepare for the coming Messiah. Christian baptism does not do that. We do repent, but it's not to prepare for the coming Messiah. He's already come. Let's look here at uh, Matthew's account a moment. Matthew chapter 3, and as typical, Matthew doesn't give all the background like Luke does, but you see there in verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 3, John comes to Judea and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, again a reference to Isaiah, and then how he was dressed and the people coming out and John basically rebuking them. And then in verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then in verse 13, Jesus comes to be baptized. And John says, basically, no, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? And Jesus says, we need to do this to fulfill righteousness, which I think what he means here simply is, I need to identify with Israel. And, and so go ahead and do it. Now Mark's account is found in Mark chapter 1, and we see more or less the same things there. So let's turn to John's account here, John chapter 1. And he says quite a bit about John the Baptist, uh, beginning very early, uh, even in verse 6, um, and then in verses 19 and following and so forth. Okay. <clears throat> here um, we see reference to Isaiah as well as to Malachi in those passages. Let's read then in verse 29 of John 1. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. 
I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. You know, as you read these verses, doesn't Paul's questions make a little more sense? You know, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? That makes a little more sense now after you hear some of these things. So, once again, either the disciples of John did not hear this part and did not accept Jesus until now Paul comes, or they did accept Jesus but hadn't made the transition to Christian baptism, which we see, of course, especially at Pentecost, where 3,000 people came to faith and were baptized and so forth. Now let's say another word here about trying to enter into their world, as it were. Recall that most Jews did not live in Israel at the time. I mentioned last week that in Alexandria alone, there were two to three million Jews. There were more Jews outside of Israel than in Israel. And most of them did not come three times a year to Jerusalem for the feast. In fact, for some of them, they only went once to Jerusalem their whole lives. Now remember, they didn't have the internet or smartphones. They couldn't jump in their car or an airplane or something like that. Word spread, but not necessarily in quite the same way as it does today. But um, do you know what happened in uh, the middle of Iowa yesterday? Now you might say, okay, Jesus is a little more important than that. But the point is, even today, we don't hear everything that's happening. And I I think that does account for some of what's going on here. Possibly these men had come to Israel for one of the feasts, and that was when John was baptizing. They heard John. They believed what John was saying. They were baptized by John. They returned to Ephesus, but didn't go back to Jerusalem. And so... Again, either they did hear about the Messiah or not yet. And if they did hear about the Messiah and believe, they didn't hear yet about Pentecost. So again, depending on which view you take there on that. All right, now let me expand here a little bit more on baptism. Paul makes it very plain, as does Luke, that John's baptism and Christian baptism are different. Why receive Christian baptism if you've already received John's baptism? Right? Why would Peter say, be baptized there at Pentecost, for example, if they had all received John's baptism? So there are obviously some similarities with John's baptism and Christian baptism. Both of them speak of the repentance of sins. Both of them talk about finding cleansing with water. Both of them talk about believing in Jesus. But here's where the differences start to arise. In John's baptism, it's about believing in Jesus who will come, preparing for the Messiah. Christian baptism, obviously we believe in Jesus who has come. As for the Spirit, both speak of this. But again, John talks about the Spirit who will come when the Messiah baptizes with the Spirit. We talk about the Spirit who has come at Pentecost and is working within us now as we receive Christian baptism. But for the similarities, and for some of these differences, the biggest difference is simply this. John's baptism is not the sign of the covenant. 
Christian baptism is. Christian baptism is a sign of the new covenant. And as a sign, it tells you what the covenant is about. John's baptism does not tell us what the covenant of grace in the new covenant era is all about. It tells us to prepare for it. So it cannot be equated with Christian baptism. John's baptism is not required for us. Christian baptism is. Okay, there's a couple exceptions like the thief on the cross, but we as Christians must receive Christian baptism. And Christian baptism as a sign of the covenant tells us about the covenant. The connections then with baptism are with John's baptism, but Christian baptism better connects with circumcision, which is the sign of the old covenant. The sign of the Old Covenant in circumcision tells us what the Old Covenant was about. And John brings that Old Covenant to its conclusion. And so John's baptism is preparatory, similar to circumcision. But again, it's not the sign of the covenant. Circumcision is. Both circumcision and Christian baptism talk about membership. John's baptism doesn't do that. It talks about preparation. Circumcision in the Old Covenant Church was into Abraham's family. You became a member of Abraham's family. But even in the Old Covenant, you see very clearly right from the beginning that not everybody in the family were true believers. Think of um, Ishmael. Think of Esau. Think of all the passages that talk about being circumcised in the heart. Or the remnant. Not all Israel is Israel. These kind of ideas. So you can be part of the external church or the true church or the visible church and the invisible church that was true in the old covenant now in the new covenant of course baptism we become members of the church right in the name of the father son and holy spirit and so forth or you could put it this way the new testament church are members of abraham's family romans 4 true believers descending from abraham and spiritual believers who are trusting like Abraham did. John's baptism doesn't talk about these things. But circumcision and baptism do, because they go together. Secondly, both circumcision and Christian baptism speak of cleansing. Now, John's baptism does, but again, it was a cleansing and preparation. Um, For circumcision, shedding of blood communicates the idea of cleansing. The big fancy word we use for this is expiation. Through the shedding of blood, our sins are washed away, right? There's payment for sin. Circumcision shows that. The heart of the covenant of grace is simply you have cleansing through the shedding of blood. And for the old covenant, it wasn't through the animals. It was what the animals represent. And that is through the Messiah who would come. And so, yes, circumcision is preparatory too, but much more directly so by saying our cleansing happens through the shedding of blood. Well, now that Christ has come and his blood was shed and did pay for sin, the covenant sign no longer needs to be blood. John's baptism helped to transition now to Christian baptism and we use water. We don't need blood anymore. Christ's blood has been shed. But... Both of them, including John's baptism here, 
speak of cleansing. And then both circumcision and Christian baptism speak of the Holy Spirit. John's baptism does not do that. Other than to say, when Christ comes, he will give you the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't communicate the Holy Spirit in and of itself. Circumcision did. That's why you see these passages in the Old Testament where either Israel is condemned for not having a circumcised heart or they're commanded to have a circumcised heart. And in my journey on these questions, it was Romans 2 that convinced me that this is exactly what's going on. Paul makes it abundantly clear at the end of Romans chapter 2 saying that circumcision by the Spirit in the heart was the intention the whole time. It wasn't just outward and physical. And certainly, we speak of the baptism of the heart. And so, very briefly here, Christian baptism and circumcision go together because they are both the sign of the covenant, baptism replacing circumcision. John's baptism is transitional, you might say. But it is uh, these two that are the sign of the covenant. And so back to Acts 19 and verse 4. And Paul is telling us there is a difference between John's baptism and Christian baptism. Now, in light of everything I've said, okay, <clears throat> this teaches us much about the covenant. It teaches also about some of the issues of infant baptism. In Genesis 17, all these things were given to Abraham who believed and to his children. And there is nothing in the New Testament that tells us to change that approach. And so we continue to give the sign of the covenant to those who believe and to their children. And so that continues. We've seen household baptisms in chapter 16 and such here too that fit with that. Well, certainly much to say, but let's um, point out one more thing here in this verse. Once these disciples heard about Jesus, uh, whom John had spoke about, they received Christian baptism. And notice it says, Paul baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, you remember in Matthew 28, when Jesus uh, said uh, about baptism, he says to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, some people make a big deal of this, and they say that Paul did it wrongly. Or that Paul was denying the Trinity, or something like that. But I don't think we need to go in that direction at all. I think all that's happening here is that Paul is emphasizing Jesus is here. Okay, What John said, the Messiah is coming, well, he's here. And so now is the Spirit. So I think it's emphasizing Jesus in this way, which in my mind kind of tips the scales toward these men not being Christians yet. So, verse 6. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. And so note here, obviously, they are baptized. Paul lays hands, the Spirit comes, they speak in tongues and prophecy. You might say Pentecost came upon them. 20 to 25 years later, Pentecost now came upon these men. And in verse 7, there's about 12 of them. All right. 
Now, whether these men were Christians already or not, I I think we learn these two key points either way. And so what are these two key points? I think what Luke is trying to tell us here, and of course God ultimately, are these. First, Jesus is greater than John. Back to what you were saying in Sunday school. Jesus is greater than John. John is the greatest prophet. But even the least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John. <laughs> and Jesus is greater than John. And, and John said that repeatedly. Right? Not worthy to, to, to uh, take off his shoes or you know whatever. Okay. <clears throat> Jesus is greater than John. Therefore, Christian baptism is greater than John's baptism. John and his baptism prepared for the Messiah. Now the Messiah has come, and thus we have his baptism. John was temporary. John was inferior. His baptism was temporary and inferior. And we could say the same about circumcision to a certain degree. But it was necessary for its time. Even Jesus was baptized by John. So it was significant. But now it is no longer needed now that Christ has come. And so if these men were already Christians, like Apollos, now they understand this better. If they were unbelievers, now they are saved. Again, I kind of lean toward the idea that they weren't Christians yet, but whatever the case, Luke is still telling us that uh, that Jesus is greater than John. Which leads me then to the second key point here. And... It is this. Let me start it this way. Some have taken verse 6 as normative. In other words, here's what Paul did. We need to do the same thing today. And we've seen it manifest itself in two key ways over the centuries. One is in the Catholic Church where they treat these things as a sacrament. Whenever that baby receives water, the priest lays hands and then the Spirit comes upon them and they are regenerated. Right? They believe in baptismal regeneration. We don't. <laughs> hey, we don't believe that. Uh, but they do. And so they treated this, this verse as normative, something that would happen all the time when someone is baptized. Now, um, the other key approach that we've seen historically is more recently, and that is, of course, with the Pentecostals. And they will take a verse like this and see it as normative. You believe first, and then at a later time, you can receive a blessing from the Spirit, the second blessing, being baptized in the Spirit. Now, most of them are rather, um, can I say, sloppy in their thinking. And, And some of them are careful, though, and they will admit that you cannot believe without the Spirit. Many of them don't say that, and they wait. You you believe first, all on your own, and then the Spirit comes later. Um, But I don't think we need to go in this direction, either of these directions here from verse 6. I think what's happening here is that Luke is trying to call our attention to something extremely significant in the first century church, something that we um, have taken for granted, are used to hearing. And that is this idea of inclusion. Let me try to present it in this way. Luke says in his account here in Acts that on three occasions 
people spoke in tongues. Only three. It wasn't normative that every Christian spoke in tongues. Now, obviously, you have 1 Corinthians 14 and other places, even chapter 12, as we read earlier, about people speaking in tongues. But in Acts, the way he presents it is it only happened three times. And I think that's informative for us. The first time, obviously, is at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, the initial pouring out of the Spirit in this special way, not that the Spirit didn't exist before or didn't work before, but now in this special way, the Spirit came upon the believer, sent by the Father and the Son. And in this coming, through the speaking of tongues, through the wind and the fire and all these things, right, it absolutely convinced 3,000 people that Jesus really is the Messiah, even though they killed him not too many days before all that. And so Pentecost, through the speaking in tongues, the coming of the Spirit was, if you will, proof that Jesus of Nazareth really is the Messiah. And so all who believe in him are included in to the church. Now we also need to include here Acts chapter 8. You recall this is when Philip went to Samaria. And he preached the gospel there in Samaria and people came to faith. Well, they believed, and they were baptized, but the Spirit didn't fall upon them right away. Not until Peter and John came, whatever it was, a couple weeks later or something like that, when they laid on hands, then the Spirit fell upon them. doesn't say they spoke in tongues there. Maybe they did, but Luke doesn't tell us that they did. But the point is this, this separation of belief and then the coming spirit was to prove to everybody that the Samaritans are included in the church too. Now, we live in a culture that is greatly insisting that we accept everyone. That isn't necessarily a bad thing. I don't necessarily like the way they're going about it. (laughs) But um, this idea of The animosity between Jews and Samaritans, I think we often don't understand. And so they needed this dramatic, unusual event to convince them that, yes, the Samaritans are included in the church. It's kind of revolutionary, really. Well, then we come to Acts chapter 10. And you remember there, that is when Cornelius came to faith. And there Peter was was sent for and came and preached the gospel to Cornelius and his family. And even before Peter could say much of anything there, the Spirit came pouring down on these Gentiles, and they did speak in tongues and prophesy. And this was abundant proof that the Gentiles were included in the church too. And so that event was talked about in not just chapter 10, but then chapter 11, and of course in chapter 15 of the Jerusalem Council. Well, now we have this passage. The third time that Luke tells us that people spoke in tongues here in the book of Acts. And possibly another time where people believed but didn't receive the Spirit right away. Just like in chapter 8 with the Samaritans. Again, depends on where you fall and the question of these believers are not already. But nevertheless, it speaks of something unique here. Again, I, I think we need to try to enter into the first century there. 
Um, this is proving to everyone that John was not the Messiah, but he spoke of the Messiah to come. And the Messiah has come, and the Spirit has been poured out by the Messiah. The Lamb of God has come, as John proclaimed, and so now we no longer follow John in his baptism, we follow Christ and his baptism by the Spirit. So in this time of transition in the first century, where some people were um, incomplete in their knowledge, Luke is telling us, look, we're bringing everybody in, in one body. Okay? Jews who believe, we could even add right the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, remember chapter 6 and all that. The Samaritans are brought in, the Gentiles are brought in, and yes, even John's disciples are brought in. His baptism is replaced. Everything is under one head. There is one faith. There is one baptism. It is Christian baptism. And so these events were extremely significant in the early church to convince everyone of these things. We've heard it for 2,000 years now. It was all new for them. And so... Uh, Luke is writing it in such a way to convince people of these things. And so there is no longer Jews and Samaritans and God-fearers and disciples of John. There are now those who trust in Christ. That's it. That's it. We live in a culture today that is wanting to divide us. Identity politics, right? You're of this race or that race, or you're of this gender or that gender or whatever gender you want. Hey, you are rich or you are poor or you believe in the global warming or you don't or, you know, whatever it is. But Christ doesn't highlight division. Christ highlights unity. The church is about being inclusive, including people with all kinds of differences, whether black or white, whether rich or poor, whatever it is, Christ brings us all together because we're all sinners and we're all saved the same way. And that is through faith in Christ. Now, we are exclusive, aren't we, as Christians? There's only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus alone. But for those who trust in Christ, anybody can come. It doesn't matter what our background is. It doesn't matter where we come from. And so God is being inclusive here, now clearly bringing into the fold those who may still have been following John the Baptist, at least still following his baptism, and saying now it is all under Christ. So let me conclude then by reading again from 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 12. <clears throat> For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, or any other division you want to add in there, right? And have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For all the questions surrounding these disciples, whose were they? Let's not miss the main point. Christ is greater 
and everyone now is under his headship if we trust in him. That's the point. And by God's grace, okay, we can enjoy this unity under his headship. Let's not get all wrapped up in the church with these identity politics kind of things. Hey, John MacArthur was speaking of this just the other day. Let's not get wrapped up into this. In the PCA, we're starting to get wrapped up into these things. That is missing the whole point. We're united under Christ. Let's not forget that. Let's live by it. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word. And though sometimes your word is hard to discern, and some questions are left unanswered, we are thankful, Lord, that your, your word is plain as to the main points. Our Lord Jesus, we do praise you that you are King, you are Lord, you are our God, you are our Sovereign, and that you alone are worthy of all praise and adoration. We bow the knee to you as Paul speaks of in Philippians 2. Lord, we also are thankful that in him, in Christ, you have brought us together for all of our differences, for all the things that may separate us. We can find unity under Christ our head. We are thankful, Lord, that in your great grace, you have come to us through Christ, that his blood was shed to pay the penalty for our sins, and his righteousness is imputed to us, that we might be seen as holy and righteous in your sight, and, and, and we can fellowship as your people with one another before you, we can come before you now, all these amazing blessings. Lord, may we um, highlight our unity in Christ, not ignoring our differences, using our differences for your honor, but may we never forget the oneness that we do enjoy in Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for these things, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.